All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you, so get your Bibles if you would, and you're going to open them up to Isaiah 9. Now, let's all get our Bibles out. If you didn't bring one, there should be one right in that pew in front of you. And I'm going to start the message in just a moment, but uh, I want to give you a chance to find Isaiah. So go right to the middle of your Bible and hang a right, and you're going to get it in a couple books after Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You're going to get to Isaiah and chapter 9. Well, there is something about this season that I just love. There is a warmth that I feel when it comes into the Christmas and the Advent season. And I, don't, I know that not everybody is like that. Not everybody likes Christmas. And there are people for whom Christmas is painful. And almost always, there are people that have either experienced tragedy around this year or are missing loved ones. They're lonely. And so I want us to be a people who are, you know, very sensitive to those who are struggling in this time of the year. But that doesn't need to dampen your joy, your cheer, your focus on Christ. Have you ever experienced, however, the disorientation that the absence of light can bring? Have you ever been in sudden darkness so fast that you don't really know even where you are? Well, there, there's something about darkness for me that I kind of like. My absolute favorite winter childhood memory took place in an incredibly cold, dark, and very still night. This was in the middle of winter. I grew up outside of Syracuse, New York, in a very little town called Derider, New York. Uh, the census, I looked at our census, our population, in the town, it's 558 people. That's pretty small. There's about 27,000 in Easton. If you take the farmers in the district around the town that still belong to Derrida, New York, you're in the 1300s. I mean, it's a raging metropolis at that point. But it's a little town that I grew up in. And I remember that we had this one winter, and I'm a little boy, and I'm, I'm thinking, if I can remember right, I'm probably around eight years old. And we had this winter where we got a lot of snow. Syracuse gets more snow on average than Buffalo, New York, if you can believe that. And so we got a lot of snow. And then all of a sudden, we got this warm front. And it melted that snow. Now, I've got to give you this context. My house that I grew up in, that my dad built when I was two years old, was the, the first house you get to when you leave town. And to my right, there's not another house, even to this day, for about a quarter of a mile. Behind my house, it's all hills and fields for 20 to 30 miles. This is how I grew up, and I'm, I was an outdoors kid. Well, the snow was melting so fast, and this is the main road going out of town, I'm on a hill above it, that it's flooding the main road. And if that wasn't a problem... Well, the problem really became pretty paramount because they were expecting a hard, cold front coming back through. So the township got all of their big excavators, and they took the ditch right in front of my house. Now, we have a very wide, front-sloping yard, and they took the excavator, and they dug the drainage ditch all the way the length of our, our yard and beyond to get that water to drain out so that it didn't freeze on the main road, Route 13, coming out of my town. Now, here's what happened. When they dug it, they dug it deeper and wider than they had ever dug it before, and they deposited all of these great big boulders of ice and snow on our yard. Now, this forms for you my absolute favorite winter memory as a child. The storm hit, another fresh inches of a fresh storm of about 12 inches of snow, and it was playtime for my brothers and I. We went down to that ditch. It was so deep that I could stand in that ditch. I could hardly get out of it. I would stand in that ditch, and nobody could see me. And what we were doing is we were playing that whenever a car would come and you could see the headlights, well, those were alien spaceships that were going to beam us up. Star Trek, right? They were going to beam us up. And so you had to get into the ditch before the car could see you, and you had to get out of the ditch before you could no longer see the car. This was the most absolutely fun winter night in my entire childhood. And we played that for hours. 
I remember that night. It was bitterly cold, but there was no wind. And I looked up. I remember one time when we were taking a break from playing, and I was laying behind one of those big snow boulders on my yard, and I'm laying on, the back, on my back, and I'm just looking up, and I could see the blackest star-filled night that I think I ever saw as a kid. I was just in awe. Now, I want you to capture that feeling because I know you've seen when you've gotten out of the city, maybe camping or hiking, I know you've seen the night sky when it's really dark and all those stars are brilliantly bright and, and shining. Well, I want you to remember that because the blacker the night, the brighter the lights. Now, I want you to say that with me. The blacker the night, the brighter the lights. All right, ready? The backdrop, Isaiah 9. Let's get into it. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's look at chapter 8 first. So just flip a little bit of page back if you need to. Isaiah chapter 8, look at verse 22. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. I want you to get that language of darkness because this is what we're coming into in this backdrop. We're going to hear a Christmas story, but the Christmas story is couched in the blackest of times for Israel. I mean, it's so dark, it's so oppressive that it's suffocating. And you get to hear these words in verse 22, and here they are again, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Why? Well, Israel was disobedient. And because of her rebellion, they were heading as a nation toward a very dark, very black period of their history, and Isaiah is prophesying to them that a, he's warning them, he's preparing them that a, a time in their history that is going to be so oppressively black, so oppressively dark, is about to come to them. He's warning them. Now, you need to know a little bit about Israel. Do you remember Solomon, David's son? Well, Israel was one people. And kind of like our country, they had a civil war. They had a civil war between Israel north and Israel south. Remember, Israel's got 12, 12 uh, tribes. Ten of the tribes aligned together. They're the northern the northern Israel, that's called Israel now. And then you've got the two tribes in the south, and they're now called Judah. So Israel has a civil war against Judah. They were one people, but now they're divided, ten tribes to two tribes. And if you read the Bible, you read the history, you get to see that almost every single king of northern Israel, the northern ten tribes, was evil. And every king did more evil than the king before. But the lower two tribes, well, they held on a lot longer. They had righteous kings for some of that time. But God begins to bring judgment against Israel. Israel's up north, the, the ten tribes. He brings judgment, and Isaiah is warning them. Isaiah is telling them, you're coming into a black time of your history, very, very dark because of your disobedience. Then all of a sudden... The most powerful kingdom on the earth at that time called Assyria. If you go straight north and then east for about 700 miles, you're going to get to Assyria. Assyria is on a war, they're just on a war path. They're conquering everybody. And they come down and they conquer Israel, the 10, the ten tribes to the north. And they're without mercy. Now listen, you're in Israel, let's pretend, let's get some holy imagination working. You're in Israel, and all of a sudden this, this nation of Assyrians, by the way, do you remember Jonah, who did not want to go to Nineveh? Well, in Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They were so bloody, they were so merciless, they were so ruthless, that Jonah did not even want them to be saved. They wanted them, the Assyrians, without God's mercy. This is what the Assyrians were like. They were utterly devoid of kindness. So you're an Israelite, and here comes Assyria, and Assyria conquers Easton and Peaburg and Bangor and the east end of the Lehigh Valley, Hellertown area. All of us are conquered by Assyria. Can you imagine that? You know what they would do? Well, if you're the poorest of the poor, you're probably, probably going to be left in the land to grow crops so that you, they can force you to, de, to, 
export them to Assyria. But if you're rich, if you're educated, if you're powerful and you've got authority, then you're going to be taken by the Assyrians and you're going to be put all around their empire and you're going to be relocated wherever they tell you to go. You're going to be taken from your home and you're going to be put where they want you to go and they're going to bring other people and they're going to settle them right in the land that you used to have. That's exactly what happened. And it would be a time, look at verse 22, of thick Darkness. The people conquered, enslaved, separated from their land. They would be in dark times. Yet God, now listen, God never leaves his people in darkness. Never. Now you need to know that because some of you are suffering. Now, now listen, you got to hear this. Some of your suffering is of your own making. Can't blame God for that. But even if it's of your own making, God's mercy is coming to you. And if God's mercy is doing a work to change your heart so that you're obedient to him and that he will bring you out of the darkness, the suffering that you're in. But God will never leave his people in darkness. He will never leave them without hope. If you're struggling right now in your life, God has hope for you. He will not leave you where you are. Never. And that hope is provided to Israel in chapter 9. Now, I gave you the backdrop. They're in a thick darkness. Assyria is on its way. It's going to conquer the people of Israel, the northern ten tribes. But God will give them hope, and he begins it in chapter 9. Here we go. Let's read it together. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, Israel. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. By the way, Galilee is part of the northern ten tribes. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So this is Assyrian-conquered Israel. And God is giving them hope. And by the time of Christ, the land of the Jews, well, here's what it's going to look like. So here's what the land, the geography, looked like when Jesus was born. Now, everybody look at me, because this will make sense of a lot of your gospel study. You hear about Nazareth, where Jesus was born, right? Well, that's up north. You've got Jerusalem down here, 80 miles south. Jerusalem's in the southern part, the Judea part of, of, of Israel at the time of Christ. And then in the middle, you've got the Samaritans. You know what the Samaritans were? The Samaritans resulted when Assyrians, who conquered them, brought all of these non-Jewish people to live right in the midst of the Jews. And over time, Jews married Gentiles and produced half-Jew children. And a Samaritan is a half-Jew child. So now you've got Judea to south where Jerusalem is. You've got Samaria in the middle. And 80 miles up from Jerusalem, you've got Galilee. And in Galilee, you've got Nazareth. You've got Capernaum. You've got the Sea of Galilee. You've got the northern part of Israel at the time of Christ. And that's where we read Zebulun. Look at that passage again. Zebulun and Naphtali was the Galilee of the nations. The region where Christ was born. By the way, do you know that the Jews despised the Gentiles? Do you know that the Jews down where Jerusalem was in Judea held the Jews up north with contempt? It would be, honestly, like... Okay, I have to be really careful on this. I'm really on thin ice right now, especially when I'm on camera. My wife once made a sacred vow to God, I will never, ever marry anybody from New York. I wouldn't ever tell God that because he does have a sense of humor, and she did marry a man from New York and absolutely loves me. Isn't that great for me to say? She's not here to deny it. I could say anything. Listen, the Jews down south hated the Jews up north. And it would be like a southern person saying every northern person is inconsiderate, they drive crazy, and they don't care about anybody but themselves. They typecast. No, it doesn't matter that that's true. They typecast us. And we typecast the south. 
But that's what was going on in the land of Jesus or the time of Jesus as well. So they had this little saying. Do you remember Nathaniel who came to meet Jesus? And Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you, see, do you hear the prejudice? Nathanael was from the Jerusalem, Judea part of Israel, and Jesus came from Nazareth, which was up north, and their mentality was nothing good can come up from there because that's where the Assyrians conquered. That's, those are the posh, the country, the wealthy, the worldly Jews. That's how they viewed him. You want to be a holy Jew, devout, then you got to live down in Jerusalem. Up north, well, they're all worldly. They're running after money and commerce. But the pe people of Galilee who walked in darkness, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, the text says, well, they're going to see a great light. And on them a light will shine. And John in his gospel tells us who that light was in John chapter 1. It says, In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, so here we go. You ready? That was just background. We're going to jump into the text. But you got to get, um, let me, let me kind of summarize what I just said. Remember my story to open up this message? You know, that brilliantly dark, star-filled night, winter sky when I was a little boy? Well, Israel was in deep, thick darkness. You know, God had not sent an angel to speak to Israel. He had not raised the prophet up for Israel for 400 years. 400 years. The people of God had not heard from their God. Now, if you can identify with that, haven't you ever gone through some time, Christian brother and sister, where it just seems that God does not speak to you anymore? That God just seems distant from you? Doesn't that, hurt? doesn't that bother you? Doesn't that frighten you? Doesn't that make you wonder why? Doesn't that make your heart, your soul cry out after him? Well, this is what's happening in Israel. They hadn't heard from their God for 400 years. All of a sudden, an angel breaks onto the scene, speaking to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. An angel comes to Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father, the, the the angel comes to Mary, and the angels come to the shepherds. God's breaking his silence. But it was a dark, dark time for Israel. And that's the background. Now let's look at the gift. Do you like to give gifts? How many of you like to wrap gifts? There are a few odd people. You know what? OCD people like to wrap gifts. You know that? Not that every one of you who just raised your hand have OCD. I don't want to falsely, you know, diagnose you. But when you wrap gifts, your ultimate, I'm just going to be honest with you, your ultimate anal control-centered personality is in full flourish. Because you're never going to wrap them unless they're perfect, right? How many of you wrap gifts and you like to wrap gifts, but you're really horrible at it? Honestly, raise your hand. Wow, okay, they debunked my entire theory right there. <laughs> This is why I'm not in counseling anymore, okay? So maybe we should just get back to the text. So the gift, and it's this person, Jesus, the Son of God, that, that Isaiah begins to present to us. He is the gift. Now, I just gave you the rest of the sermon. He is the gift. And here's what Isaiah does. Now, you got to get this, and I love this. This is what Isaiah does. He gives this gift to us, and then he begins to slowly unwrap it. Now, in my family... I'm sure it's kind of like this with you too. Unwrapping speed is entirely dictated by age. So my littlest ones, well, I can't say ones because I've got a 20-year-old, 18-year-old, 16, and a 9. So my littlest one, my youngest one, when he unwraps gifts, it is like the cookie monster devouring cookies. I mean, it's just... Things are flying, okay? My older children now, though they have some decorum, they've got some propriety, they've got some manners, and they slowly do it. Whereas Denise and I, well, we kind of, you know, unflap a corner and then take the bow off, we save the bag. We, you know, it's all entirely dictated by age. But here's what Isaiah's going to do. He's going to unwrap this gift, and I'm going to unwrap it with you. We're going to unwrap it together, and here's what he's going to do now. It's entirely verse 6, so just look at verse 6. Here it is. He's unwrapping this gift. 
For to us a child is born, and here's gift language, to us a son is given. So the gift is a son. The gift is a child. And the government, here it goes, he's unwrapping, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For to us a son is given. Man, that's amazing. Now, you ready? This is so... This is so mild of a truth that it almost flies under the the radar. A gift that is given to us is a gift you cannot have earned. Listen, if somebody gives you something that you earned, we call it a wage. We call it a paycheck or payback. But if somebody gives you a gift that you did not earn, the Bible calls that grace. So now read it again with that mindset. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You don't deserve that son, and I don't deserve him either. We did not do anything that God said, you earned my son. The only wage, now listen friends, you've got to get this, the only wage that you and I have earned is a wage of death, according to Romans. That's it. The paycheck that we get, if God is truly just, now some of us, when we suffer, some of us accuse God of not being just. God, you're not being just to me. Listen, if God was just to you, you're going to spend eternity in hell. The very fact that his son died for us and he saved us through Jesus means that God's justice was met in Jesus. Therefore, unjust people like you and I have a chance at life. So a gift is given to us means you didn't earn it and you can't lose what you did not earn. Don't you love to give gifts? I love to give gifts. And I said this before, when I was littler, when I was younger, I loved to get gifts. That's kind of shifting in me. I like to give gifts. I love to give them now even more than I love to get. But I want to tell you about, I think, the most brilliant gift that I have ever given in my entire life. At least I thought it was brilliant at the time. I'm a sophomore at college, my undergrad. I'm at Liberty University Christian School. They had dorms for guys, dorms for girls. They didn't have dorms for both guys and girls. And I'm in the guys' dorm. Why? Because I am a... Thank you. And I got this brilliant idea because I'm dating this girl named Karen. And we've been dating for a little time, and I thought, well, it's Christmas time, we're getting ready to go. Actually, it wasn't Christmas, I'm sorry, it was her birthday, and I'm thinking, what can I get this girl that I've been dating for a few months, what can I give her for her birthday? But I couldn't decide what to give her until this brilliant idea, I think from the Lord, came into my mind. I went with my roommate. And uh, we went to the store, we got a bunch of gift wrapping paper, and a card, and a bow, tape, scissors, I think I had the scissors. Came back to my room, and I thought, you know what, I will have my roommate wrap me. (laughs) I couldn't think of anything more brilliant than that, so he wrapped me from head to toe. Wrapped my legs, wrapped my arms, and then wrapped my entire appendages to my torso, stuck the card that I had already filled out because I'm a conscientious man to my head and put a bow on top and I waddled my way, little rippage of the wrapping paper along the way, but I waddled my way over to her dorm where I had my roommate call her on the dorm phone to come down and get her gift. Now this is brilliant. Some of you girls right there are stunned by the brilliancy. I can see it in your face. Guys, I know you're jealous. This is a brilliant idea. So she came down and she had to unwrap me. Apparently, that gift had a really good return policy because she broke up with me right after that. (laughs) I kind of learned at that point, I don't think I will do that one ever again and I never have again. 
But nonetheless, I love to give gifts. Don't you love to give gifts, gifts and watch people open up? Well, Isaiah, now listen, Isaiah is in full Christmas morning gift-giving glory. And he is unwrapping it for us bit by bit. And there are, are there some who are very deliberate and very slow, but Isaiah is very deliberate. He is quick, and he begins with the first glimpse. Ready? Here you get he, the wrapping paper is coming off. Look what it says, verse 6. The government will be on his shoulders. By the way, if you are a Bible student, and you know about this millennial kingdom, the thousand years that Christ will set up and reign on earth, and this is a, an illusion. The government will be on his shoulders. It's an illusion, a pointer to the period of the millennial reign where he's going to reign over all the earth. And the earth for those thousand years will experience peace and nations will come into and go out of Israel. And Israel will be the focus point of this thousand years. But there's something else I want to tell you about. The government will be on his shoulders. Now, ladies, you're going to love this. This, this speaks to Jewish weddings, to something that happens that is so beautiful and so timely. When a Jewish man would propose marriage and she accepted it, he would place a veil over her face. By the way, Rebecca, when she was told that that's her betrothed Isaac walking toward her, she got down off her camel and put the veil over her face. And that veil stayed on until the point that I'm about to explain. The veil would go over her face, he would put it there, and it would signify to everyone around her that this woman is spoken for. And it would protect her purity and her dignity and her modesty, very similar to an engagement ring. When you put that ring on the finger of the person that you're now engaged to, it's, it speaks a message. I am committed. I am spoken for. I have a fiancé. Well, the veil did something very similar. But then, at the wedding, there would be a point in the wedding where he would remove her veil off of her face. Now listen, ladies. He would take that veil and he would place it on his shoulders. And it signified to her and her family and to the people around who acted as their covenant witnesses that the government, the leadership of their marriage, he was gladly accepting and he was promising to lead her well. Isn't that beautiful? As Isaiah is unwrapping this gift we see the Messiah who is Adonai, the Lord. He is the Lord of all. Possessing full authority, he is willing, willingly shouldering the responsibility. He's putting it onto his shoulders. He's saying, I will redeem my people from this darkness. I will lead them into everlasting life. Now the phrase, amen, the phrase was used, however, in another way. There was a couple ways they used this. Another way, another way that they used it was the city, the most trusted administrator who had the authority over the city given to him by the king would be given a king and that king, or that key rather, he would be given a key and that key would be sewn, either literally sewn to his shoulder or a figure of the key would be sewn on his shoulder. And it signified that the king had given the administrator the rights of the city to administrate it as he wanted. But either way, the government will be on your shoulders, whether it's through a wedding metaphor or imagery or the administrator's authority. Either way, it signified that the father had given the son full authority to redeem us and to lead us in the way everlasting. See, what Isaiah is doing is he is unwrapping this gift and he is showing us Jesus, who has been exalted as the king of all kings and the authority to rule. And then he begins to unwrap it a little bit more. And look what it says. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now your Bibles, probably all of them, make that two words that form a phrase. You don't see a comma in between them, at least in most of our translations. 
But the truth is that there are two distinct attributes. It should read wonderful and counselor, not wonderful adjective, counselor noun. It's wonderful and counselor. So the word wonderful, it means separate. It means distinguished. It means great. It means, let me just sum it all up. It means to be a marvel. So wonderful is to be a marvel. He is so astounding. Now, by the way, wasn't this Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum? His authority astounded. It amazed the people who were, who were there and hearing him cast the demon out of the person in the synagogue, hearing him teach with full authority. He was a wonder. He was a marvel. He was amazing. That's Jesus. He's glorious. He's remarkable. When you see him and when you see him through the eyes of faith, you behold him as he truly is. And the worshiper, you, you begin to be filled with wonder and amazement. That's Jesus. You know, I've had people so often say to me how boring the word of God is to them. And you might have even said that too. How boring. I mean, I'm trying to get into the Bible. I know I'm supposed to read it. I know if I meditate on the word of God day and night, I'll be like a tree planted by streams of water and my leaf will not wither and everything I do prospers. I know that. The psalmist says that, Psalm 1, but it's so boring, I cannot get into it. The Bible is boring, friends, then Christ is boring. Because this is, this is Christ in written form. The word of God is Jesus. It's a title for him. Everything in here describes Jesus. Listen, you cannot demarcate, you cannot divide that. If you find the Bible boring, then you find Jesus boring. And if you find Jesus exhilarating, if you find Jesus a wonder, a marvel, amazing, then you're going to find his word amazing and marvelous and wonderful. But then you get to the second title that is in that phrase that we often put together. It's counselor. And it means not somebody that will sit down with you and walk you into, walk you out of your struggles and tell you the secret wisdom that you need. That's not what it means. The word counselor is one of honorable rank. He has a rank that is so honorable that he is worthy then to advise kings and princes. It means that he sits with the Father, he sits with the spirits, and he takes counsel with them for our good. Listen, the wonderful, marvelous counselor is the Son of God who is interceding for us along with the Holy Spirit, and he is speaking to us words from the Father. He's taking God, his Father's words, and bringing them into our hearts. That's what Jesus does. He intercedes for us. His wisdom is perfect. He gives it to us generously. He never steers us wrong. Christ knows what we need. He knows how to lead us. This is Jesus. He is wonderful, marvelous. He is the counselor, the one whose rank is worthy to give us advice. I will praise the Lord, the psalmist says, who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Listen, friends, brothers and sisters, if you wake up at night, if you're waking up out of a sound sleep and you do not know why, listen, don't put your head under the pillow and try as hard as you can to get back to sleep. I know you want to do that. I want to do that. But you've got to see, is God, through Christ, speaking to you at night? That's what the first thing you've got to learn to do. Jesus, are you speaking to me? It says, why I have awoken. Because it's so still. During the day, your lives, like mine, are frenetic. They're busy. You're going from one thing to another. You cannot hear God very clearly. Until the stillness of your bed, until the stillness of the night, everybody is asleep, and all of a sudden, sometimes God can break through and get us to hear him. But counsel, now listen, counsel can only go so far. We need the power to change. We need to get the power to obey. We just don't want advice. We need help. So Isaiah keeps unwrapping the gift. And look what he says. Jesus is our mighty God. He has that power. Not only is he marvelous, not only does he have a rank 
with the Father and with the Spirit, and he brings his advice. Listen, he is mighty in power. That means he's got all power at his disposal. There's not any clear declaration of his deity that the Son really is God. There's no mistaking this. Isaiah sees this child as fully God and fully man, the mighty God born as a humble baby. And unwrapping this gift, well, here's what it does. It makes us examine our own humility. Do we really understand this about Jesus? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of his servant. He being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How could the mighty God humble himself as a slave? That's what the word means, a doulos. How could he humble himself as a slave and die on the cross for us? Well, that's, that's the entire Christmas message. This is the gift that Isaiah is unwrapping for us. It's the great paradox. The mighty God of the universe who spoke the world into being, he came to a little dot on the planet, Bethlehem and Jerusalem and Israel, to an obscure teenage girl born in an animal stable, laid in a feeding trough. It's amazing to me. How many of you have seen The Hobbit? The new one. That's it? I haven't seen it yet. I'm hoping to go Monday. There's something about a, a good movie at a theater. It's kind of fun. We don't go very often. They're so expensive, but it is fun. Well, Ravi Zacharias, I think, one of the best Christian minds on the planet, he tells him an incident. When he was a little boy, he, li he grew up in India. He is from India. And he tells of a story that, where his mom gave one of their household staff some money and told him to go see a movie at the theater. Now, you've got to get this. It's the first time he's ever been to a theater. It's the first time Ravi Zacharias, he's a little boy, first time he's ever been to a movie theater. He arrived a little bit late. The movie had already started. He walks into the theater, but he walks into the theater, and in that theater, you could do it. He walks in from the front door. Now, you got to get the imagery. It's like the screen behind me right now, the, you know, the movie's being shown, and, and Ravi enters through one of these doors on the side. And he stood there, and he's unable to see it so dark. And he's watching these beams of light coming from the, the upper part of the back of the theater, and it's beaming through, piercing the darkness, and he's watching the dust motes go through that light, and it's trickling, and it's changing in color and intensity. He's enjoying it. He's just standing there. He's a little boy. He's enjoying it, and then his eyes begin to adjust, and he notices all the audience, just like what you're doing right now, all of the audience looking in the other direction, looking towards where he is, and he slowly turns his body and he sees the screen full of images and color, and he lets out what in Hindi language is equivalent to Eureka. He was so surprised. This is the, this is the surprise, friends, when Isaiah is unwrapping this gift, and we get to see the wonderful, marvelous advisor from God the Father to us, who is mighty in power, the government is on his shoulders, and Isaiah is unwrapping him, and he's presenting them to him to us, Jesus, the Son of God, and our hearts are to respond with shouts of glory. I kind of think this is what's filling Isaiah's heart when he's writing this. The Son of God, he's got all authority. He speaks in all wisdom. He exercises all power. And on top of that, he is what? He's what? He's, look what it says. The everlasting Father. Now, what? How could the Son of God be the everlasting Father? He's the second person of the Trinity, right? The Heavenly Father, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit. How can Jesus be called the Heavenly Father, the Everlasting Father? This is a, this is a Hebrew idiom. It's a saying. And it means he who possesses something is the ruler of it. Now I'm going to explain this. He who possesses something is the ruler of it. That's a Hebrew saying. 
And what, Jesus, what Isaiah is saying is Jesus is our God. We are his people. He will forever rule with wonderful counselor, power and love. And just like a father takes his children, the son takes care of his people. He is the everlasting father when it comes to the way that he wanted so desperately. And it says in Matthew, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. That is the father's heart beating in the sun. Then he takes one final piece of wrapping paper off. He says he's the prince of peace. Peace, and I want you to remember this, peace in Greek language is Irene. I just went to see Irene Pfeiffer from our church. It means peace, but it's shalom in Hebrew. So I want you to say that with me, shalom. So the shalom, the prince of shalom, it's a common greeting. By the way, shalom is a common greeting for Jews. It's it's when they ask after the health, when we ask, how are you doing? That's what shalom means to a Jew. Except they actually try to mean it. I mean, how often do we say, how are you doing? And we don't really care. We kind of move on before they can even answer. You ever had anybody do that for you? Well, shalom was inquiring after the health of somebody, but shalom was also a way to say goodbye or farewell. When they would go on a journey, the last thing that people would say who loved them was shalom, farewell on your journey. Well, here we go. You ready? Now, can you, can you hang with me for a second? Let's go back to the backdrop for a second. Israel was in darkness, deep, thick darkness and gloom, threats all around them. And this child, Isaiah says, this child will come and he will be the prince of peace. He's going to bring rest from all of what you fear, all the danger around you. But now listen. You can have peace when you go with suspicious lumps in your body to the doctor and the doctor says the MRI showed up negative, right? That could give you some peace. But that kind of peace is temporary because the next time you feel something going wrong in your body, here comes the fear again. Or you can have vertical peace and that peace is this, that God loves you brother and sister in Christ, God says nothing can possibly ever come into your life but what he decrees. God is the great physician. God has numbered your days, Psalm 90. God has created your works, Ephesians 2.10. God is absolutely sovereign and brings all things together for his good purpose for those who love him, Romans 8. Listen, when you know God, when you know God like that, and you've got a relationship with him, all of a sudden you've got peace that the world cannot take away and that circumstances cannot rob. And all of a sudden that well-being with God produces shalom so that you fare well wherever your journey takes you, even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the prince of that product. He is the prince of that shalom. He is the prince of peace. You unwrap Christ, you bring him into your life through faith, he will flood your hearts with peace. But here's what you've got to know. Here's how it works. When God gives peace, he gives the absence of warfare. When you and I were in sin and all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you are at war with God. You are at enmity with God and so was an I. You cannot experience peace. What puts an end to the war is the death of Christ. And when you come to Jesus who was hanging on that cross and you say to him, you ask him, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I am separated from your father. I am at war with him. I was content to live my way, but he would not tolerate it. And my future is hell, but I don't want hell. I want eternity in heaven. And when you come to Jesus and say, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. Let your sacrifice be enough for me. The father drops a gift right at the bottom of the cross, and it's got your name on it. 
And when you reach it out by faith and you take that gift and you unwrap it, guess what? All of a sudden, you see the government's laid on his shoulders. You get to see how marvelous he is and all the advice and the truth and the, the guidance in life that he can flood you with because he is wonderful and your counselor. He is mighty in power to order your steps and he is the prince of your shalom. He's the prince. So that we could say what Ephesians says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our shalom. How do you get it? Well, through the blood of Christ. Are you still in Isaiah 9? Can you look at verse 7? This is one of the most spectacular verses you're ever going to read. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Do you know what that means? Look on the screen behind me and you'll see what it means. Ray Ortland says it. He says this, There will never come one moment in eternity when we will say, this is the limit. He can't think. God can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite, and every new moment will be better than the last. Christian brother and sister, that's your future. Every day will exceed the day before. You will never plumb the glorious depths of God. Billions and billions of years and eternity and the depthless, boundless grace, glory, spectacular wonder of God will ever, ever be new to you. That's the power of this gift. Isn't that amazing? So we end with a promise. Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal, by the way, can you think of the most jealous moment you've ever had in your life? I want you to think of it right now. That's the word zeal. It's God's intense, jealous devotion to us and his love for us. It's his holy jealousy that springs from his love and it guarantees to us that his word will come to pass. His son will be given. His kingdom will be established. His people will be delivered. His people will be saved. Their days will always be better the following day than even the glorious day before. This is the promise. Hope is coming to Israel, the chosen people of God, and the Gentiles who believe that most of us will share in their blessings. So what confidence, what confidence, brother and sister, we can have during Christmas especially and what peace it will bring when we understand the sovereign might and the love that God has for us. There is nothing in our lives which escapes God's attention and care. He knows what you need. And he has words of guidance and power for us in every situation that we might face. And listen, this is Jesus, the gift we unwrap. He stands at the right side of the Father. He intercedes for us with perfect counsel. The mighty God has the power to accomplish all that he desires and his plans to prosper and bless his people to make us a redemptive and holy community. They're going to come to pass. He's eternal. He cares for us with more patience than any earthly father ever will have. Sometimes disciplining us, but always out of his love for us. And he traveled from the manger, that feeding trough for animals. He traveled 30 years later to the cross, and he established peace for us with his father. This is where the light pierces the darkness. Let me take you back to the beginning one more time and then we'll end. Here I am, I think I'm eight years old. I'm lying on my back behind this boulder of ice. I mean, this thing is big. And they're dotting our landscape, dotting our, our yard. And we're taking a break and we're just gazing up at this blackest of nights with the most brilliant array of stars. And all of a sudden, 
Fast forward 12 years to Tim Ackley's life. I had really walked away from the Lord. I had resisted drinking. I never did drugs, but I resisted drinking year after year, even though all my friends, I couldn't tell you one single Christian friend in my entire school. My youth group was 30 minutes away. My church was 30 minutes away. And they wanted me to drink. They wanted me to get drunk. And I resisted it, resisted it, resisted it until one time, almost halfway through my senior year, it was on the night of one of our dances. One of my friends had a six-pack of Miller beer out in the snow. And he said, let's sneak out. And I took a drink. I drank three of the bottles. And every single weekend after that, I began to drink. And during the summer, every single night, I began to drink and get drunk. I did that for two years, and I kept promising the Lord. I went to Liberty University because I knew where my life was going. I knew that I could already feel the hold of alcoholism because I wanted cravingly that drink. And so I went to Liberty to try to get away from it, but I found people at a Christian college that drank like I did, and we would sneak off and drink. And I would come home, and I would say, God, I know this is wrong. I know my life is in deep, thick gloom and darkness. I am unhappy. The world giving me the best that it has and I'm being stripped of joy you've got to deliver me from this and I would promise him I'm not going to drink ever again that promise would sometimes last 24 hours until almost one week after I came back from my freshman year at college and the Lord took my three best friends, Artie Kagans, Alan Liddell, and Kathy Conway, took them right completely out of my, my life, stripped them from me, and put me in the most lonely, deep darkness I think I'd ever been in. I said, all right, Lord, I give up. I need you to change my heart. I need you to take away the wrong desires. I need you to put the right ones in. He took away my three best friends. The very first day of getting back to Liberty University, I met for the first time who would become my very best friend, whom God would use to turn my life around and to get me on track studying the Bible again, Mike Redman. And after Mike, Dan, Roger, Tim, till enough godly men came around me to stabilize my boat, to help me get back on the path of light and righteousness. That's the power of God. Listen, if your life is dark, and you're what Isaiah says, stumbling around in the darkness, well, you're like me, almost always, that's your own choosing. And God will put you in that darkness until you're ready to gaze up and see the brilliant stars of, the, of Jesus Christ. And you unwrap by faith that gift. And he will come into your life and he will deliver you from the darkness and he will set you on high places and he will give you a life worth living. That's the power of the gospel. Thanks be to God, Corinthians says, for his indescribable gift. Amen? Let's pray.